News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Safe supply is often touted as one of the answers in our overdose and toxic drug crisis. Is that the answer, though? Well, there's a new study that suggests these programs can play an important role in the expansion of treatment and harm reduction options that are available. That that means it could actually translate into better health outcomes for drug users. Let's talk about this study. It comes to us from Unity Health Toronto. Tara Gomez is a researcher for Toronto's Unity Health Network. Tara, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me a bit more about this research? What did you do? Sure. So we worked with um, the London Safer Supply Program. It's uh, the longest standing safer opioid supply program in Canada. And it's based out of Ontario in one of the larger cities in Ontario. And we um, took all of their data on their clients in the program since it started and linked it to healthcare records that we have access to. So we can understand people's um, access to emergency departments, hospitalizations, physician contacts, um, medication use. And what we were able to do is look at what happened in terms of people's patterns of healthcare use and health outcomes after they entered into the Safer uh, Supply Program. Okay, and what did it show you? Well, we found um, what I think is really important and immediate reductions in the rates of emergency department visits, inpatient hospitalizations, um, and healthcare costs associated with, with those contacts with the system among people who were part of these safer supply programs. And importantly, we actually identified a similar group of people living in the same area who also had an opioid use disorder but weren't accessing these programs, and we did not see any change in any of those outcomes in that population, which really helps drive home the point that the engagement specifically within these safer supply programs really improved people's health status. It led to less contacts in the healthcare system and, and less associated costs as well. Was there a time frame for this? Like, is this a long-term health outcome that we're talking about? Yeah, so we, we looked at the first year of being part of the program because that allowed us to have enough data on everyone to really follow them forward. So, um, you know, most people stay in these programs for at least a year. And as we follow them forward over that year, these reductions happen very quickly and they, they were sustained over that year. So this wasn't just, you know, a short-term effect that then went away, but people were really having this improved health status for that whole year. And we also saw no increase in overdose no increases in infections um, and no opioid-related deaths over that year as well. Okay, that's so interesting. So then what do you think was the key there, Tara? Was there one particular aspect of the connection um, with people that, that made this outcome happen? Yeah, that's a really great question. One of the, the elements of this London Safer Supply Program that's really important is that they not only provide people with you know, a safe alternative to the illicit drug supply, but they also are based in a primary care model. So they provide people with connection to family physicians and to other social services and supports. And so it can be very hard to tease out the impact of the safer supply from these other supports that are provided. But I think what it really tells us is that by having a, um, an approach to harm reduction for people who use drugs who are at very high 
high risk of overdose, where you not only provide them with these safer alternatives to the illicit drug supply, but also provide them with wraparound services, help them connect to community-based programming, help um, manage what other comorbidities people often have, like HIV and hepatitis C diagnoses and long-standing infectious complications from the drug use. By providing all of those services, you can really make a huge difference in the lives of people. But do you have to provide all of those services to make that work? That, that, is, that is the next question that we really need to answer. There are a large number of different models of safer supply that exist across Canada, and we can see from this work that this model has worked very well for people. And what we now need to do is look at some of the other models that are provided and really try and identify what are those unique characteristics of these programs that are providing the most benefit for people. Okay. Do you think this would work elsewhere? Uh, Tara, I know you were studying this in the London, Ontario area, but, you know, here in Vancouver, we could certainly use some answers like this. Yeah, I mean, I think that the basic premise of these models really can be applied anywhere. The idea is that the the drug supply right now, the illicit drug supply, is incredibly unpredictable and toxic, and that's the case in British Columbia the same way that it is in Ontario. So providing people with that alternative to that supply and known substance of known potency and content can be hugely beneficial and help prevent overdoses. And, you know, there's long-standing evidence that really shows that also providing people with um, destigmatized low-barrier access to health care in a welcoming setting and social supports are also going to improve people's health status. So I think that these findings really can be translated across the country. All right. Well, Tara, thank you so much for your time on that. Thanks for having me. That's Tara Gomez, who's a researcher for Toronto's Unity Health Network. Uh, They have done a study that shows that these programs where they reach out and there is a safe supply available to drug users, that these programs can play an important role in engaging those users in treatment and harm reduction options. That is something that, you know, you need to get people connected to the system to be able to provide and offer, to get people thinking about it, whereas normally they might not have been reachable. But by providing the safe supply, there is that kind of connection into the system. And, you know, we talk a lot about this from a Vancouver perspective. This is an interesting one because it comes to us from a southern Ontario perspective, too. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. I think when you look back at, you know, true crime podcasts and how they became so popular, you have to start with the one that is making news this morning. And for more on that, we're joined by our Raji Selha. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, this is such a wild story. So a judge in Baltimore has overturned a murder conviction and just happened yesterday, and it's for Adnan Saeed. And for some people, that name will sound familiar because his case uh, was behind an entire podcast. It was called The Serial Podcast, S-E-R-I-A-L. And it was a show, a true crime podcast that just raised doubts about the facts in a case surrounding this guy, Adnan Saeed. He's been in jail since 1999 when he was convicted in the death of his high school classmate, Heyman Lee. She disappeared after high school and was found buried in the park, and he was the one deemed responsible for it. Now, at the time, I'm not sure if you tuned in, Simi, but it kind of took over the lives of so many people. It was such a, a cultural phenomenon at the time. It was super well produced. I used to clear my calendar for new episodes, um, participate in the forums online about it, you know, asking, is this guy 
innocent. And on weekends, I'd get together with friends and we'd ask each other, what do you think? Did they send the wrong guy to jail? Right. This is the thing that got me about listening to it is, and it reminded me, we were talking this morning too about, remember Making a Murderer on Netflix when that first came out? I never... I never got the sense 100% either way. Like I thought that was still ambiguous. So it's interesting to me that this has now happened. They did such a good job on the podcast to make it appear ambiguous. I think they were trying really hard to not be biased. They kept questioning themselves along the way. Are we being fair to both sides? They, they really dealt well with the victim's family, I thought. But in the end, there were still all these holes, um, things like cell phone records, alibis, DNA testing, so many holes. Um, and then there's been since then, you know, a uh, questions for a desire for a new trial and appeal process, some along the way wins and other denials. And now ultimately he's been released and he's serving home detention while prosecutors weigh uh, whether to proceed with a new trial or, or drop the charges altogether. They only have 30 days to decide. Just 30 days to me is wild when this man has been in jail for two decades. And I think that it, one thing it also makes me think about is uh, the potential for this to happen with other cases. In fact, there have been some other true crime uh, podcasts that have led to allegations being uh, looked at again and for some convictions being subsequently overturned too. There were a few others. A, a popular one was out of Australia where a man was found guilty of his wife's murder 40 years after she went missing. And I think one thing that it points out to is how flawed our systems of justice can be, that it takes a podcast and a very dedicated host and producer team to try to pretend that they are detectives, yeah. essentially, and I mean, get to the bottom of a story. They didn't even, the podcast didn't come out until 2014, and he'd been in jail since about 1999. Yeah. The murder happened in 1999, and it still took, as you pointed out, 23 years to make this happen. That doesn't mean that it's all going to go away, though. There is still the option prosecutors have, is that they could retry him. They're just saying they didn't believe in the integrity of the original conviction anymore because there were also a lot of questions about his lawyer, who eventually ended up disbarred. Yeah, his lawyer ended up disbarred. Uh, there were complaints about that lawyer from other cases as well. Uh, so that wasn't even explored to the full extent in the original podcast. Um, but one thing that the that has come out of this too is uh, the victim's family is deeply disappointed. They're saying that, you know, they already went through this process. It was a legal process and a podcast shouldn't change things and that this is their real lives. It's not just a podcast. It's not just entertainment. That is so true. I know they, they're feeling that too. So there is a chance this could be tried again. They're, I guess they're waiting on DNA analysis. This is the story that just keeps going. I know. It does keep going. Over the years, every time I've heard of uh, Adnan Saeed's name since listening to this podcast so long ago, every time I've heard his name, I get delved back into this rabbit hole of research because there are scores of people around the world, really, who have been following this story and kind of doing their own sleuthing, uh, which should make me cringe, but it doesn't. Right. It just makes me think that there, you know, the legal system, the justice system sometimes doesn't get it all right. I know. This is why you should see my Netflix, my Netflix algorithm. You should see how many true crime <laughs> documentaries I watch. Raji, thank you so much for that. 
Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal there. Uh, for more on that, you can also email me with your thoughts, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, the ceremonies are over. The United Kingdom has ended its official national period of mourning following the death and funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. So what is it like the day after? You're joined now by Redmond Shannon, our Global News European correspondent. For more on this, hi, Redmond. So what is the mood like there the day after? Well, it is, I guess, a mixture of things. Probably, uh, you'd say, uh, certainly a sense of pride uh, among um, royal watchers, among people in general in the UK at the show that was put on, not just yesterday, but across the last week and a half here. Uh, the How things panned out. Um, the, the, the level of detail in organization, in the pomp and pageantry, in the security operation was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, seeing it up close was uh, just, it gave a real impression to me of the planning, the years and the decades of planning that went into this. Uh, and it went off as anyone who had watched any part of the ceremonies yesterday will have seen without a hitch. It was phenomenal. And uh, one can only imagine how much it has cost but uh, this is what a constitutional monarchy does when the monarch passes away and when you have leaders from almost every country on earth and dignitaries, 500 dignitaries in total, being bussed and shipped in uh, under security, um, under different levels of lockdown in the city centre around Westminster and that in fact went off without a hitch. People are uh, you know, proud of that, but I think after such an intense uh, emotional and, uh, shall we say, media week and a half, <laughs> which we're all part yes. of. Um, I think people want to are ready to move on as well. You know, it, ten days is a long, eleven days is a long time. Um, most people don't get that send off. Uh, obviously, a queen is very different, um, but there are a lot of pressing issues here, and I think people's thinking, yeah, okay, let's let's move ahead let's now. Move we ahead, we yeah. need to move ahead, yeah. Boy, I, you're absolutely right about that. Watching yesterday and, and really over the last 12 days, it has been amazing. But the execution of what happened yesterday, the secure, I couldn't even begin to imagine how stressful doing the security aspect of that was yesterday, given all of the people, the dignitaries from all over the world who, who arrived for the funeral. I mean, it must have been amazing. Yeah, and and then what you what they also have to factor in is is um, shepherding the crowds. So you get you're bringing crowds towards this area where you have all these dignitaries, every important person in the world that you can think of who might be a target apart from Putin uh, was there. And uh, but people, we had thousands and thousands of people nearby. I went in super early uh, at six o'clock, coming out of a tube station. I made the mistake of getting out at the wrong tube station and Green Park near Buckingham Palace getting stuck in a sort of uh, in perhaps a uh, what seemed like an endless loop of trying to find my way to our workspace oh, no. near Westminster Abbey. I had to do some serious about turns through huge crowds of people super early in order to make my way um, very, via circuitous route um, through security checks to our workspace, which was behind these four-meter-high barricades across streets. If anyone knows Trafalgar Square, where Canada House is, yeah. it has six, seven, eight streets coming off of it. Every one of them had a wall along the width of the street 
four meters high stuff. It was it was like lockdown. It oh, was God. like COVID lockdown again for this period because of the intense security. And I because I almost got stuck in a loop there at first hand. Thankfully, I managed to, uh, because I was there early enough, get through to where I needed to go to need it to be but it, it was just uh just beyond belief oh is all that gone now redmond so the next day is it all over done with everything all those barricades are down as soon as the funeral ended simi they were tearing down those barricades really? and move it removing things there was sand on the street for the horses these barricades were, were crashing to the ground we could hear them things because this is the center of one of the world's uh mega cities and uh, it was on pause for a week and a half around Westminster. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't yesterday. You couldn't go at, driving in London yesterday was non-starter. Getting around for any reason was a non-starter. Thankfully, it was a public holiday. It had to have been. Um, so it was immediately turnaround, and it was it's an operation to tear it down as much as it was to put it up. Well, it's been amazing to watch. Redmond, thank you so much for this. Thank you, Simi. Bye. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. There are a lot of questions surrounding what happened at the P&E Amphitheater on Sunday night. That's where a riot broke out after the headliner act of a music festival didn't perform at the last minute. So let's find out more about that. Laura Balance is with us now, president of Laura Balance Media Group and spokesperson for the P&E. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, what do we know about what happened, kind of the, the chain of events on Sunday night? Sure. So um, it was uh, the second day of a two-day music festival, Breakout Festival. Um, and this is an event we've had at the PE for many years um, and had without, largely without incident. Unfortunately, on Sunday, um, just prior to the headlining act uh, about to be performed, um, the that individual decided he was not well enough to perform and left the venue. And so fans who were waiting inside the venue, there was about 5,200 people that had uh, come to the festival for the day, uh, were incredibly and, and I think understandably disappointed. Uh, 4,200 of those people um, approximately left the venue, um, disappointed but in a respectful and orderly fashion. Unfortunately, about a thousand of the guests turned their disappointment into a violent outburst that unfortunately has resulted in hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage to our property and, and Hastings Park and uh, has truly shaken our staff. It, it was a very unfortunate situation. Um, some of that spread into the, the neighborhood and, and we are very sorry for that as well. Um, the p and has a a really close relationship. We've been there for 112 years, uh, not only with the residents, but the businesses in the community. And we are incredibly sorry for the impact that this has had into our neighborhood. Now, is the PNE considering any kind of response to the kind of the damage that you obviously extensive there and the cancellation? Like, what about, will there be lawsuits? Like, how is this going to be handled? Well, um, you know, we will be working with the promoter and our expectation that the promoter of the festival, Timber Concerts and Events, and their insurance provider will work with us to ensure the complete and timely repair of all damages related to that incident, not only um, on our site and the vandalism that occurred there, but any vandalism that may have occurred throughout the neighbourhood and city. 
Right. Does a peony have any kind of preference for how this is handled by police? There's been a lot of talk of using that video to track down the perpetrators and, and perhaps have them face criminal charges. What is the peony's uh, preference for that? You know, I don't know if we have an official position. I certainly have a strong opinion, and I know the leadership at the PNE has has a very strong opinion that uh, we will assist uh, the Vancouver Police Department. We are very thankful for the work that they did on the night of this incident on Sunday night. Uh, Additionally, we we thank Metro Vancouver Transit Police who came in and helped as well uh, to restore order. Uh, I can't say enough good things about how... Uh, VPD and the transit police were able to work together with our security team to restore order, uh, you know, in a very timely way. And the professionalism that they brought in dealing with a very, very unruly crowd. Um, We support them and encourage any and all uh, opportunities to investigate this. Obviously, today is a very, very busy day. It's been a very busy night uh, for the Vancouver Police Department um, with with another file, but um, we will work with them and encourage them to take all steps necessary. On a personal level, I think this is completely unacceptable um, to destroy such an iconic um, part of our city uh, and an uh, iconic institution, and to do this damage is is inexcusable. There there is a, you know disappointment is one thing, and and I understand that. But uh, to take that out and to traumatize our, our staff that were simply there doing their jobs um, is unacceptable. Do we know how long it will take for this damage to be repaired? Does that impact any other shows? Uh, we're working very quickly. We have a number of shows coming up in the coming days, and we expect to be able to stage those events at this point. Um, we will be getting temporary um, equipment in to cover off Uh, the equipment that was destroyed, and we're hoping to be able to move forward with all upcoming shows. All right, Laura, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thanks for having me and for all the support that we've seen from the people of Vancouver and around the province on this incredibly unfortunate incident. That's Laura Balance, president of Laura Balance Media Group and spokesperson for the PE, talking about the riot that happened there at the PE Amphitheater on Sunday night. There has been a lot of discussion about using all of this video that is out there on social media uh, to track down the people who were clearly causing destruction and mayhem on that night. It, it reminds me a bit about what we went through in 2011 after the riot, right? That was really the first time that we saw all of this stuff posted on social media and police you know, went to a lot of effort to track down people via their social media posts and to press charges in that case. Do you think they should do that here too? I mean, it's pretty clear. You can see the videos. They're all over the place. They're all over the news. You can see it on Global News. And there are definitely people throwing things, breaking things, causing damage. Should the police be pursuing them the same way we did the rioters in in 2011, do you think? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. And they started rioting and breaking all the tents and everything. I saw people stealing credit card machines. Like when you tap your phone to pay, people were stealing credit card machines. People were stealing merch. People were stealing drinks. Everything. It was free game for them. Just some of the witnesses talking about how the riot started and what was what they saw, essentially. This is at the PE Amphitheater on Sunday night. Concert goers were not happy. Some of them were not happy with the very last-minute cancellation of the event. And as we just heard from Laura Balance and the PE, there are about 5,000 people there and about 4,200 or so, you know, calmly and left the venue without problem. 
About a thousand, though, people stayed, and boy, they began to riot. They began to destroy things. So what happens? We wanted to dive more into the psychology of this and why, when there is a big crowd, why do people make those impulsive decisions to go along with the crowd, even if it means destruction and rioting and looting. We saw that happen here before, right? In 2011. And the excuses that we heard from people who had participated over and over and over again, they all said the same thing, right? Well, that's not me. I don't do that. I don't know what happened. I got caught up in the moment. But how does that happen? Well, joining us to talk about that is Amy Moran, who's a psychotherapist and the author of 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do and host of the Very Well Mind podcast. Amy, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. I guess it doesn't surprise you when you hear that, you know what, a few people decide to write and then a whole bunch of other people join in. Like, what happens at that point? It's a strange thing from the outside looking in because they think, why would anybody do that? But there are a couple of reasons. Number one, we know that emotions are contagious. So when somebody's outraged and they start saying things like, we shouldn't have to deal with this or this isn't fair, the people around often then get fired up as well and they become angry, upset. And then when we see people doing certain behavior, this is the second part to it, it's almost like that becomes the default. And we think, I have to either opt in or opt out. It takes more energy sometimes to not go along with the crowd. So we're really susceptible to going along with the crowd, not just for those sorts of events where we might destroy and become destructive, but also other things. If you were to smell smoke in a crowded movie theater, yet nobody else gets up and moves, you'll probably still sit there, even if you're... you're you're feeling a little bit anxious. If nobody else is reacting, you'll think, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't react either. But when people do take action, sometimes we look around and we think, oh, this is what we're supposed to do. And we don't take that moment to think, wait, this isn't something I actually want to join in. So do we not have a filter, though, that tells us, no, no, the right thing for me to do here is blank? We do. However, in the moment, our emotions cloud our judgment. So when our our anger, our frustration, our anxiety, those sorts of feelings go up, our logic goes down. So the more emotional we feel, the less likely we are to think in a rational way and we just go along with the crowd. Okay, that is so interesting though. Can we help ourselves? Like who are the type of people who look around and say, no, I'm not doing this? Like what's different about them? You know, I think it's the people who can pause, the people that have the ability to say, uh, wait, is this something I really want to do? And they just take that moment to ask themselves that question. Like, is this normal? Is this abnormal? Is this something that I want to join in? And sometimes that's all it takes. It's just that one minute of realization of like, I don't want to destroy something just because somebody didn't show up to a concert. This isn't who I am. This isn't what I do. So anybody who has that emotion regulation where for a minute they can take a deep breath, pause and ask themselves, do I really want to do this? They're much more likely to opt out of bad behavior even when it's going on around them. Is that something that we are able to predict, though, or is that something behavior we can learn? It's something we can, we can all learn. All of us have the ability to learn better ways to regulate our emotions, better ways to take more productive behavior. It's all part of mental strength. As you build more mental strength, you just become more aware of your tendencies, how the people around you affect you, and how you can make sure that you're living according to your values, even if the people around you aren't. Is that how you like define mental strength then? It's, it's knowing and understanding your choices and the consequences of those choices. That's a big part of it. So it has to do with the way you think, feel, and behave. So in a situation like this, where there's a mob mentality going on, you're able to think, okay, this isn't what I want to do. And in terms of your emotions, you're able to take a couple deep breaths, calm your body's response down, be able to uh, decrease some of that anxiety or anger. 
And then in terms of your behavior to say, well, what's a productive thing I could do? Well, I can walk away. I can leave. I don't have to just join in just because everybody else is doing it. And so the people who do join in then, Amy, do they have a moment at all where like while that's going on where they go, what am I doing? Or does it not until afterwards, maybe when the emotions have lessened a little bit, that that's when they realize, oh, man, what did I do? Often it's not until they get home or they start to tell the story to somebody else like this is what happened. And as the words are coming out of your mouth, you might then think, wait, why did I destroy that? (laughs) Why did I do that? And it might seem odd to you, but in the moment, a lot of times people just aren't thinking, and that's why they're going along with it. So quite often, right there in the moment when emotions are still high, other people are still misbehaving, it's really hard to come to that conclusion. And as you say, a lot of people will say, well, that's not me. I don't do that kind of stuff. Because they're trying to distance themselves. Nobody wants to be the kind of person that would become destructive and destroy property. That's the thing, though. You said it so perfectly, is that people, if you ask somebody, they'd be like, oh, no, I would never do that. And yet it's those very same people when put in a situation like that, you suddenly see on camera doing exactly that, isn't it? It is. And so it's they kind of have to put a distance between themselves and that behavior that they just did. So it's hard to then justify it after the fact because you're like, well, this person didn't show up to the concert, so I was allowed to do that. Or I was really outraged or um, somehow you have to find a way to, to justify, well, I did do that. So whether it's I lost money or this was unfair or I, I told them, I showed them what was right. Uh, but for a lot of people, that's really tough to do. And so and then if they come to that conclusion of, well, that was wrong, I shouldn't have done it, then uh, it's even more uncomfortable. So a lot of times people will continue trying to justify why they did something. So what is that in the human brain then? Like what part of psychology is that where I'm sure, okay, we're talking about the negative aspects of it, but are there also, uh, there's a reason for it. Are there also positive aspects to it when this works for our benefit? It does. So if you see a lot of people around you helping out, let's say there's a natural disaster and the people around you are all pitching in to help, you kind of pitch in and help too without maybe thinking twice about, no, I don't want to do that. So it can have positive uh, impacts on our behavior. Uh, advertisers know about this too. So when it comes to products that we buy, they often give us that message of, well, everybody else is buying this or everybody else is doing this as a way to try to lure us in because they know that there is that impact, that effect on us. So your mom was right back in the day when she told you to be careful who you out with, hang out with because they influence you. The people around you definitely have a huge influence on you. That is so fascinating. It's like when your mom always said, well, if they jumped off a cliff, would you jump too? This is like the same mentality. Right. And chances are, if they jumped off a cliff, there's a good chance you might have done it too. So that's why your mom tells you that. Because when we see people around us behaving in a certain way, we often just get on the bandwagon. Oh, moms are right all the time. Amy, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. That's Amy Moran, who's the author of 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Also the host of the Very Well Mind podcast. She's a psychotherapist talking about mob mentality. It makes perfect sense, right? When she lays it out like that. People who say, I would never do that. Well, we see them doing things like throwing furniture and rioting at the p Amphitheater on Sunday night. So do you think police should be pursuing those people the same way we did when it came to the riot in 2011? Pr- press charges. Email me, simi at cknw.com. I say yes, do it. If you're dumb enough to put yourself all over social media knowing people are filming while you're doing it, then you absolutely should face the consequences of that. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, municipal elections are less than a month away at this point. We are going to the polls on October 15th right across BC. We'll be electing mayors, councillors, trustees. 
One of, if not the biggest issue for communities across the province is housing, finding it, being able to afford it. So as part of our continuing coverage on this year's elections, we turn our attention this week to the Vancouver mayoral race. We will be speaking with the five major candidates for mayor, and we'll be talking about that all-important one issue of housing. We're going to start this morning with candidate Colleen Hardwick, who is representing Team for a Livable Vancouver, and she joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I know housing has been a hot topic. What have you been hearing, though, from people when you're out door knocking and going to events? It's definitely one of the top three topics for people, without a doubt. Okay. What would you say are the top three, then? Uh, safety, cleanliness, services, and, and ultimately affordable housing. Okay, well, starting with the housing issue then, because that's what we're focusing on this week. For your party and for you as a candidate for mayor, what is your plan for housing in the city? Well, team has a 10-point plan, which I'd like to run through with you right now, if that's okay. Okay, well, 10 points, we better get to it. (laughs) Okay, I'm getting to it. So uh, today's City Hall is largely responsible for the affordable housing crisis. And this is the vision legacy starting in 2009 and continuing to this day. Our city government has taken millions of dollars in community amenity contributions, CACs, and this money was intended to fund parks, community centers, and other amenities for a growing city. But instead, it's added to the city's general revenues in order to fund an ever-expanding list of council priorities, as well as responsibilities downloaded from senior levels of government. So the first plank in Team's affordable housing platform is to remove CACs from general revenue. Where needed, they'll be used for true amenities for neighborhoods, community centers, park acquisition, including many facilities that have been allowed to fall into disrepair. Effectively, the city has been selling rezoning to fund its so-called council priorities. So what's the problem with this? Well, what happens to the value of a piece of property when it's rezoned? It increases. And this inflation is called land lift. Every year, BC Assessment reassesses all properties according to highest and best use, meaning the most money that can be extracted from developing under current zoning. So rezoning land leads to increased assessments, which are applied not just to the rezoned properties, but to all of the neighboring lands that could be similarly rezoned, and a rising tide lifts all boats. Many storefronts and local businesses have gone under, not just because of COVID, but rather because of sky-high and continually increasing property taxes on potential development of the air above them. And between 2010 and 2020, the land and the air above it within our boundaries went from 188 to 480 billion in nine years. That's 2.5 times or exponential inflation. So if we want to make housing affordable, we need to stop inflating land values exponentially. We need to slow down the number of rezoning applications and the resulting galloping land inflation. And the worst offenders are the Broadway and Vancouver plans, where several older but serviceable rental buildings in the Broadway plan area have already been sold at a premium and many are up for grabs. And the Vancouver plan will export this approach throughout the entire city. So the second plank in Team's affordable housing platform is to slow down land inflation by repealing the Broadway plan and the Vancouver plan and review them through the lens of each neighborhood's needs and perspectives. Let me just interrupt you there for a second. So let me ask you, though, you're talking a lot about rezoning here and reusing money. What about Mm -hmm. building more housing? Where, Where does that fall into your plan? 
Well, the building, again, it, it needs to happen within the existing zoned capacity. Um, if you imagine putting a plexiglass box over the whole of the city where you could see what the height and massing could be under the existing zoning, you'll see there's a lot of it. That's the, that's the good news. So if we if we are building within the existing zone capacity, we can stop inflating land values in in excess of pace of change, which is the huge problem that we're we're doing. So you're, you're so saying that, that it would stay within all the density that we have right now. You're saying that is the density that would stay would stay the way the way it is right now. Rezoning is what inflates land values. We've done boatloads of it over the last decade plus. If you were to put a plexiglass box over the city so you could see what height and density we could build into according to the existing zoning, there is a lot. So if rather than flating land values continually, if we build into the existing zoning and then we look at the other levers of housing production cost, the time that it takes to get permits through, the cost of the permits themselves, which have gone through the roof, and the building code, which is Byzantine in its complexity. It's more expensive to build in Vancouver than any of the surrounding municipalities. So my point is really two-pronged, slow down the rate of inflation and build into the existing zone capacity while reducing the cost of housing production through efficiency, reducing the cost of permits and the building code. Because around 25%, of the cost of every unit is attributable to the city in one way, shape, or form, and the city can control and reduce those costs. Let me ask you, how would you plan on getting that done? If you don't have, you know, a majority on council that is people made up of your party, councillors from your party, how do you propose to get this work done? Well, we need a majority. We need a majority of, of people that understand how this works. That's been my biggest frustration over the last four years on council is that uh, we've had people in there that do not understand urban land economics. And again, the city has built a model that is dependent on promoting development to extract revenue. And promoting growth is about profit and revenue, as opposed to managing growth, which is really the city's job, which is about creating livability for its residents. I think for residents, though, and I'm one of them in the city of Vancouver, one of the frustrations of the last four years has seen a council that doesn't seem to be very good at working together. So if you can't get that majority of your team on council, how do you propose to work with other people to get this done? Is there compromise in there somewhere? Well, I, I would contradict your point because out of the 256 rezoning applications that were uh, that were reviewed by this council over four years, 100% of them were approved. So uh, they may be differing on other issues outside of land use change, um, but they have been unanimous in their approach to approving rezonings. Did you did you vote for those? No, because I have been analyzing what I'm talking to you about in the land inflation. And I tried all through the term to get adequate uh, data and evidence from city staff about how much we're building, how much is in the pipeline, what is the zone capacity? What about other things like secondary market rental, basement suites, rooming houses? What about short-term rental, um, Airbnb, international students? All of these are variables that affect our housing situation and staff have failed despite unanimous motions directing them to provide that data to provide it. 
So what I'm saying is that we really need to know, and this is one of the planks of our affordable housing platforms, it is to provide a, a real-time dashboard that demonstrates what is really in the pipeline, what we really can grow into, and then amplifies the need to be building affordable housing within our existing zoning. Right. And what would you do about that Vancouver plan that has generated so much discussion? Well, I'd rescind it. It's upside down and backwards. I advocated, I've been advocating since 2005 for a reboot of the city plan process, and I campaigned on it in 2018. And what was supposed to happen was building upon um, the, as I like to say, the tapestry of neighborhood or community plans that were involved over decades of our professional staff's involvement, going back to Ray Spaxman, um, and knitting those together and looking at a neighborhood level. We need to add 500, 1,000 new dwelling units to that neighborhood over the next decade plus. Where do we put them? How do we integrate it? What's the impact on mobility, community amenities, commercial activity, and green space? Mm -hmm. So that's a nuanced and careful community planning process. Instead, what we got with the Vancouver plan is a top-down, deterministic, one-size-fits-all and autocratic approach to planning in the city, which I find objectionable because I do believe that we can accommodate the, the growing population without uh, steamrolling our city. Uh, Councillor Hardwick, very quickly now, why should people vote for you on October 15th? Well, for me personally, because I have the background knowledge and experience uh, to turn the ship around. And there is a course correction that is required. Moreover, I knew I could not do it alone, which is why I have formed a team of uh, people that have the kind of experience, again, background knowledge and experience that we need to uh, affect this turnaround. So we need some people with law and finance and strategy and technology and communications, people that are, are in, you know, love our city and understand what we need to do to recover our balance as we plan into the future. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. We appreciate that. Thank you. That is Colleen Hardwick. She is a candidate for mayor in the city of Vancouver with Team for a Livable Vancouver. We'll be speaking with the other major mayoral candidates as well throughout the week. So if you have questions for them, send them to me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Here on the South Coast, it's been uh, extremely dry since the middle of July. You recall we had a pretty wet spring and a cool spring and then bang, mid-July through now, some places hardly a drop of rain. Yeah, that's right. I mean, remember back months ago, way back, we were calling June, January because it was so cool and there was so much rain. That does seem like a distant memory now because since then, since the sun came out, July and August, now well into September, we are talking about nothing but sunshine and very little precipitation. Even now, we are sitting way below average for the month of September in terms of precipitation. So we've had very warm temperatures, extreme heat in a lot of areas, wildfires, all of that adding up to one of the driest summers, particularly here on the South Coast. And local farms are taking the hit for that. One of those farms is Man Farms. And joining us now is Gurleen Man, Operations Manager uh, for that farm. Gurleen, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Simi. No problem. Thanks for having me. Now, what has the dry weather meant for your farm? Yeah, so the dry weather has been difficult, um, honestly, to work in. It's been difficult to pick in. Um, it's 
you know, we're not just growers. We also are an agritourism business. So um, I've noticed, you know, we've had a lot less people come to our farm um, to, you know, see our animals or visit the farm in general because it's just too hot to be outside. So you started out the year, I remember, I think we talked to you a couple of months ago with how wet the ground was and how difficult it was to plant. So did things turn around? Were you able to get things planted? Yeah, I think that um, because we had such a wet start to our season, it was very difficult for us to plant certain crops. Um, And actually the dry, dry weather made our soil a little bit drier and we were able to plant our pumpkins and, and, you know, moving into fall, that's very important for us. Um, But it, you know, it is difficult for other aspects. I know that um, corn needs a lot of rain or it needs, it needs more water. So, so that really, really, you know, it's, it's a catch 22. So some things are doing well, some things are struggling. Okay, so what would we notice then in our grocery stores or at your farm as a result of this? Yeah, I think that um, I think that people will notice that there might be a shortage of pumpkins, a shortage of corn, um, you know, because a lot of farmers are still scrambling from the wet season that they had earlier. And then all of a sudden to get hit with this dry, dry heat, it's like you have to change gears. And so we're, I feel like farmers a whole year have just been in problem-solving mode. First with the, with the hot, uh, first with the wet weather and now with this hot, hot heat. We could say that, I guess, for the last year and a bit, couldn't we, though, for BC farmers? Absolutely, absolutely. It has been a tough, you know, couple of years uh, for farmers to really just get back into their rhythm and, you know, with predictions of, okay, like, you know, when should I plant? And, and you know, when when will my crops be ready? Will I be able to, you know, um, make make a return on my investments this year? So it's, it's definitely a very difficult time for farmers. So what is the farming situation like right now then, Gerline? Is it still pretty dry out there? Yeah, it is pretty dry. However, it's cooling down. Um, honestly, for us, our pumpkins are looking great. Um, we are blessed in that way. So um, my brother, Amir, is, is the farmer and, you know, he's been telling us everything's looking great. I We've started to make our, our um, we've started to decorate our store and people are coming and buying pumpkins. So we're doing really good, um, but uh, I think definitely there will be a shortage in supply in grocery stores, yeah. So how much has all of this changed, would you say? Like the unpredictability of the last two years, is that different from the way farming was, say, when you started out doing this? Yeah, I think that um, the past couple of years, what they've taught us is that you have to really um, have a backup plan and then have a backup plan for your backup plan. And, you and you know, honestly, just the way that I grew up and just the way my family is and other farmers, we are good on our feet. We are good on our toes. We know how to problem solve. But I think moving forward, we will have to be able to consider, okay, maybe next season we might have we might be faced with this really wet weather. So we do have to plan accordingly and come up with, you know, innovative sort of um, um, innovative methods to combat potential risks that our crops could face. Yeah. So are you changing anything then for next year, like looking ahead to the next season? 
Yeah, I mean, we did build a greenhouse. Um, Amir and my father, uh, Chris, they we they both have uh, built a huge greenhouse for us. So we've already put the plan in motion to deal with wet weather for our strawberries. So we are growing strawberries in our greenhouse, and I think that that will really be a blessing for us next year um, so that we can control the climate and, you know, control the way our strawberries are growing. Is that just, do you think, going to be reality for farmers here in BC that you're going to have to think about ways to almost kind of protect yourself from the unpredictability of the weather? Absolutely. Farmers are, you know, at the mercy of Mother Nature, and that's kind of been our sort of our game plan. That's just how things go for farmers. But, um, you know, I, I think it's we are we are able to be quick on our feet but i think no one really predicted how much rain we were going to get in june so it's still you know you never know yeah exactly okay so then what should we as kind of potential buyers of all the fruits and vegetables in bc Gerline, what should we be prepared for this fall what are we going to notice yeah, I think that um, you might not notice like a very full husk of corn. Um, you know, like last year when we had extreme wet weather, we actually lost 50% of our pumpkin crop. So some farmers may, you know, in, in some more um, wetter, wetter areas of the lower mainland, some farmers might not have been able to recuperate and not may, may not have been able to plant as much as, um, you know, they, they should have. So there, there might be, you know, a shortage in, in crops. And, you know, I think that, I think just as uh, the community, it, it's good to be able to go out to your farmer, to your local farm and see what's going on, educate yourself and try to support farmers as much as you can. Oh, as always. Yes, we like to hear that message. Gerline, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Denise. Have a great day. You too. That's Gerline Mann, Operations Manager for Mann Farms. You should check them out. They are an agritourism business for sure, so you can go out and visit, check out what they've got. Talking about the dry conditions that we've had. Now, months ago, we were talking to farmers about the incredibly wet spring they had had and how difficult it was to even get seeds in the ground, get things and crops planted. And then things had a dramatic turnaround. Things got dry and sunny and have stayed that way ever since. Now, we're now talking about like drought-like levels for here on the south coast in BC, where we haven't had like substantial amounts of precipitation. We are way below the average amount of precipitation that we would normally have at this time of year. And right now, even looking at the forecast for the next five days, there's one day where it looks like we are going to get some rain. That is for Friday. There are some periods of rain in the forecast. But other than that, that's about it. In fact, last week, there was, I think, a day where we had rain in the forecast and... It kind of rained a little bit, and then that was it. Nothing really substantial. I'm still watering my garden at this point. I did not think I was going to have to be doing that. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. I recently broke my ankle. It happened while out for a sunny stroll very early one Saturday morning. I was walking on a sidewalk and stepped off onto what looked like regular city grass when suddenly my foot fell into a hidden six-inch wide and deep hole like a pedestrian sinkhole, if you will. The bones in my ankle made an audible crack, and the pain was so immense that I blacked out from the shock of it. When I came to, I managed to flag a stranger across the street to come help me, an older man. He practically carried me to his car, helped me hobble into the passenger seat, and drove me, a hyperventilating stranger, 
to the ER where he magically procured a wheelchair for me, and then he vanished. Now, I've been struggling with all the challenges of a broken foot since, but one thing that's kept me afloat is just remembering the kindness of this stranger, and it's made me wonder, what's the nicest thing a stranger has done for you? So I asked around the office. So the kindest thing a stranger has done for me was I was in Vancouver and I had dropped my wallet and I live in Surrey and the next day a stranger brings back my wallet and not a single thing was taken from it. I was super thankful and that was probably one of the kindest things anyone has ever done for me. So I'm in my very early 20s. I'm in a tiny village in Denmark. We're spending Christmas with my boyfriend's parents in his hometown. I've borrowed his dad's car to go run an errand. I'm a little out of practice with stick shift, but I'm kind of okay until I end up in a cul-de-sac and I go to make a three-point turn to get out of there. That's when I realize that I do not know how to find reverse. I've spent 10, 15 minutes just trying to find reverse. My nose is in someone's garden. I think I'm going to just live there for the rest of my life. Finally, this elderly Danish man comes out from the house behind the garden. He doesn't speak English. I don't speak Danish. But I have never forgotten how kind he was as he did this sort of mime performance to teach me how to find reverse on this gear shift so I could get out of there finally. He was so nice about it. So a few years ago, I was at this Billy Joe concert in Portland, and I'm 50 rows back uh, in the left aisle in a zone reacting to whatever the band was doing. And like all of a sudden, this young woman comes doing New York State of Mind. You got the idea. Uh, she grabs me by the hand and she takes me, come with me. She takes me like, and uh, when I realized we were like in the first row, front and center. And then she asked me, have you ever been that close to the man himself? And I'm like, no. And a few minutes later, we go back. She takes me back to our seats because the usher asked us to get back to our seats. And then I look away for a second. And then I wanted to thank her, so I looked back, but when I looked, she's gone, vanished, out of thin air. And I, I, I have come to terms to me, I guess. Oh, maybe I saw an apparition, not a woman. But that's my story. A few years ago, I was trying to go downtown. I don't remember for what. It was snowing. I had my baby who was probably about six months with me. I also had a three-year-old preschooler with me and I forgot my wallet at home. And I was freaking out because I was gonna be late and it was snowy and I had the two kids and I asked the SkyTrain attendant if they could just let me on for free this one time. You know, open the gates for me. I don't really know how that works. Anyway, the attendant handed me a compass card And I was like, thank you. And I tapped in and I got downtown. And then when I was coming back, I was like, oh, I wonder how much is on there. Because I couldn't load it because, again, I didn't have my wallet. And so I tapped it again. And that's when I realized it had a whole month's pass on it. So that December, I got to ride the whole month for free. I don't know why they did that that day, but it was so kind. And I I assume they don't make a regular practice of giving out like fully loaded compass cards to, to people who don't have fare. But on that day, it just made such a big difference. 